Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm your friendly host, John, and I'm here for this episode with Drew Gorton, Head of Developer Relations at NEAR. How's it going? Good. Happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So, Drew, I like to start with all of my guests with origin stories. I love hearing how people got started in tech. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you first get interested in programming and tech? Yeah, probably not that unusual in that as a kid, I was a little bit nerdy and exposed to computers. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to computer at like a medium young age. Found out that I was like good at it and that was cool and such. But it wasn't really a, like a passion or a real interest until many, many years later, like go to college, do other things. I lived abroad for a while. And part of that was actually super formative for me. So I was teaching English in Japan for a number of years. And while I was there, it was kind of like early days of the web is like the late 90s. And one of the things that I started using the web basically in the classroom. Because I was like, oh, you know, I teach kids like there's only so much. Hello, how are you? You know, it just gets boring. You try and liven up the lesson plans. So I started realizing like this tool that was emergent was actually, you know, an awesome communications tool. And so started to reach out and basically put my kids in touch with other language learners across the world. And I saw their just eyes light up, right? They were just excited. Rather, it went from this terrible, boring subject, which I also felt as a high school student when I was learning Spanish. I was a terrible Spanish student. Oh, it was so bad. And then later on, I had a chance to live in Spain and that changed. It was also cool. Anyways, I saw their eyes light up as they were like interacting directly without intermediaries with these kids around the world by building little web pages and such. And I just knew I wanted to be part of the world. It's like, this is changing the way the world is in a fundamental way that really speaks to me in a deep personal level. doesn't matter about your race, religion, your boundaries, where you grew up with languages, like all of that stuff, like the ability to just directly connect with other humans across the planet was super powerful. And like at the time, again, this late nineties, you know, we didn't have the tech to like just hop on a discord or like, you know, playing a game with somebody and like, oh, you're in, you know, three States away or two countries away, or maybe English isn't in your first language, et cetera. None of that existed. A long time ago, we had to build all that. And so when I came back to the States and was sort of like, all right, now what do I do when I grow up? Like, what's the next thing? I just went in that direction. I wanted to become a web developer to start with and go from there. So, but that early passion is still very much like a through line throughout everything I've done since then. I love that. And it's interesting, like, meet a surprising amount of folks in DevRel who have some kind of like liberal arts or teaching background. Like, yeah. like I have a history degree and I went to DevRel. You know, how did you actually learn to code, right? Like what was that transition point from like, okay, you went to school, you were teaching English, but how do you become a developer? Yeah, 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 totally. Well, I did some, I mean, like a whole bunch of stuff. Some was independent studies, just like buy books, watch. At the time, yeah, I was like, I was going to say watch YouTube, but no, that didn't exist. No, it was like, that the equivalent of that, that was like buy books. And then I also went to like a university night classes kind of thing, like continuing education classes at the University of Minnesota, which is where I'm based. And they had a, a really good course on web development that was like, like the first thing I did. And then I did the additional units and such. And then eventually I came back and was like 
I started after like two years, they asked me to be an instructor. And so, and for anyone who's done teaching before, if you've ever had to teach a crowd of humans, there's no faster, better way to learn than being accountable to teach it, right? And then like <laughs> have to answer the hard questions that you don't know about and such. So yeah, that was just nights and evenings was a start. And then you start doing it at some point, you're just like, all right, I'm the imposter, but I think I can do this and go for it. And I still remember the first day that when I had the interview and was then selected for my first job that had the word developer in the title, I was so excited. I was like, wow, all right. You know, it was like hugely validating, but they'd been doing the work and moonlighting and trying things for literally months before that. And actually over a year at that point. So you mentioned that like one of the things that inspired you to sort of like get into tech was the way that it connected your students to the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of like lit this spark. Do you still see those connections happening today? Like, are there parallels to the work you're doing in DevRel to those early days teaching English as like study abroad? Yeah, I think, you know, like jumping a long ways ahead, you know, your comment on liberal arts degrees and things like that. I think in my opinion, one of like the strongest threads or through lines or commonalities between people who do DevRel is like this mentoring gene or a sense of empathy is like a really big part. Like as I think about the teams that I've built and hired over time, there's a really common path, which is like, you're not a developer, then you are a junior developer, then you're a regular developer, then you're a senior developer, and you're sort of like evaluating your career path. And you're like, I don't know if I want to be an architect, you know, tried a little of that. It's like, eh, managing, eh. but like the thing that people get fired up about is like mentoring, right? Going and helping other people get into this space. And whether that's a teacher or is almost always manifested somehow in their hobbies or other things like that, or, or maybe some stuff that they like kind of do on the side for work. And it's so this like really strong mentoring, empathetic sort of feel like gene that we have. I don't want to paint an overly broad brush, but it's like a definitely common thread amongst the teams that I've and the people I meet in this space. As a general group of humans, you get a bunch of DevRel people together in a room and it's like lots of laughter and smiles and genuine warmth. It's a really nice group of humans to work with closely. Now, as I say this, though, I realize, what was the question again? I feel like I just wandered off and started answering what was in my head. <laughs> no, I mean, I, mean I, I love what you touched on. I, I'll certainly restate the question. Is, but I completely agree that when you're in DevRel, part of your job is helping other people be successful, yeah. right? Which really does, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, a job requirement is empathy, right? Like you mm -hmm. really have to yeah. understand and care about other people's problems because a lot of the time they like supersede your own, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to help the developer be successful and that may or may not be the deliverable that you have to show to the company, right? It's almost mm -hmm. like a side effect of all of the work you're doing. Yeah. But the question, you know, was really like, what are the parallels here, right? Like you were teaching, now you're sort of leading a team that has to onboard and educate developers in the near ecosystem. Is there anything that connects those two aside from just like the general idea of helping people learn? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for restating that. Yeah. Appreciate that. For me personally, it's almost like meta-level DevRel for me. It's like I'm mentoring now people who are doing the teaching which is super gratifying. And so I think, you know, even just like lessons you learn from classroom management on how to run a workshop, right? Don't do too much lecture, make sure it's actionable. If eyes start glazing over, you know, make sure there's people here, especially as you teach technical topics. So you give a workshop on technical topics, have good ratios of like supporters in the room who can be helpful there and like get around if you're doing something in person. Or if you're doing it virtually, make sure you've got like a real dedicated support channel for like, hey, I'm stuck. Don't let that person get lost, right? 
And so for me, the experience of teaching and having done that for multiple years in, again, classroom setting, teaching something different, but there's like, there's commonalities. Like we as humans are learning creatures and you can observe patterns over time, whether learning tech or English or other things. And I think those things really apply. Again, that's one of the things I really enjoy about what I do today is like work with all these talented individuals and help them get better at the craft of DevRel, which is in many ways mentoring and empathizing and helping people learn. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So it seems like from those early days of like being a self-taught developer, going to some night classes, you know, getting your first development job, that you kind of ended up pretty deep in the Drupal ecosystem. And this kind of hit a sweet spot for me because my first actual job at a tech company as a Drupal developer, I think it was like Drupal five, I want to say, like it was 2007 or eight. So a ways back now. But I'm curious, like, how did you end up doing Drupal? Like, what <laughs> drew you into that? And, I, you know, no hard feelings about Drupal, but like, why? Yeah, you yeah, know, like, totally. Why that? I'm really super interested. Now I'm like going deeper into your LinkedIn history. What was the company, if you don't It was called that? Flat World Knowledge. Okay. They've since migrated off of Drupal. But I mean, to go off on a, a funny little tangent, it was a open source textbook company. So okay. the idea was that they would hire authors, release mm. their textbooks as creative commons, allow professors to remix and edit them for their particular classes, and then sell the physical books. And so everything was built on Drupal, which was interesting. But we effectively built a book editor and a WYSIWYG that sat on top of Drupal. Yeah, awesome. Wild, um, wild time. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. No, thank you. Like I was part of all sorts of interesting projects along the way too. Yeah. So I first discovered Drupal. I started off my own first myself independently and then had enough work to start hiring other talented people and growing the team. It was like the early 2000s, you know, doing things like building your own, rolling your own content management systems. It was super common at the time. And then you do it again and again and again. One of our big clients at the time actually was PBS, like the television, like public broadcasting service, did a lot of different television shows and such. And they had a particular set of guidance that we had to use. And so we ended up building this pretty elaborate system for them and did a lot of TV shows with that. And then our other clients had different things. And we just kept finding ourselves just like rebuilding and rebuilding this content management infrastructure. And probably after too long of that, observant bystander would have said, hmm, haven't you been doing this too long? We were like, all right, we should do a survey of the landscape. And my actual first survey of Drupal, I think it was Drupal like 4.6 or maybe 4.5. Oh God, I think it was even earlier. Anyways, like we can go check my Drupal.org account or whatever, but I totally rejected it. I was like, you get over yourself. Taxonomy and nodes and the jargon was so thick. And then one of the developers in the local PHP community here that I really, really respect was actually talking to me about this. And she was like, you need to go back and give Drupal a second look. What we ended up doing is we did a pilot project for somebody on a different content management platform. It was amazing. We could get like a bunch of stuff together quickly. And then they asked us to like customize it and like change red to green or something. And then we were like, oh, sure, we can do that. And you look under the hood and we're like, oh, don't look at any of this code. It's terrible. And so I started sharing this with Allie, who is again, the person I was mentioning. She was like, no, you really should look at Drupal. I was like, that thing is just so ridiculous. Come on, really? And she's like, no, no, no. I think, you know, just do it. And so we ended up looking at it at a technical level, like, oh, all right, I see why all the pompous jargon is being used. This actually makes a lot of sense. It's generic use cases. The content management system is almost like a proof of concept application you can build with this framework. And so we started building with it. And we stuck with Drupal for a long time. And like one of the things that really made me think of myself as a Drupal person was actually going to an event. 
So I went to DrupalCon Boston 2008. And it was a weird thing to do is like go across the country to a Drupal event. It felt a little bit weird at the time, but walk into the room and there's just a whole ton of really smart, thoughtful, caring people trying to solve problems. And I was just like, wow, myself and my tech lead were both of us were like, wow, okay, this is amazing. We're definitely going to stick with this and do even more of it. And it just fueled a ton of opportunities because you know, around the Drupal 5 era, there were just a ton of companies doing really interesting, maybe not always the best fit for the tech perhaps, but like just a ton of interesting projects. And, and it's still actually formative for me, like it shaped so many professional and personal relationships for me that continue to last. And, you know, in my role today, I think about this, I'm still connected with that community, but like, how do you foster community is another really critical part of DevRel. And so I think about those experiences and I think one of the things like is a challenge for us, which is the subject of a, its own whole podcast, was like fostering connection in a, in a virtual world, in a world where you don't get to get together and be in person with people and have that experience of like walking to a room and having serendipitous contacts and just like, wow, I just met the most amazing person. Wow, I just did that again and again. And it just becomes like a really amazing experience. So yeah, that's a little bit about the Drupal. Yeah. Have you seen any particularly successful examples of fostering virtual connection? Because I've seen a lot of attempts at it, especially over yeah. the pandemic. But I don't know. No, not at scale. If you got answers, I don't know. Have you? Yes and no. I think I have not seen a conference style event that can create the same type of serendipity online that you get mm. in person. I have seen other styles of events that work. We do virtual hackathons every week, even still. And we only started doing those in 2020. And the thing that I think is the difference maker is we still organize it around a fixed time and place and schedule yeah. and activities. So like, it's not asynchronous. It's not a come and go event. It's like, oh yeah, you're here, you're participating. People are online the whole time. And I think that makes a huge difference. And it's frankly, like a lot of the value of conferences is that you're all leaving your day jobs for a couple of days to hang out together. Yeah, agreed. Actually, we use that same pattern as well. And then the creating moments for, we're all going to do a Twitter space or something like just some milestone chunks to like, we're all online. Here's the, you know, there's kind of constant communication happening in whatever your community, you know, the Slack or Discord or whatever. But like, agreed, making those, we've been using Twitter spaces actually and playing with it and actually seeing really feeling like that's actually pulling in some of that. But yeah, it's just like such a high bar. I don't know. And then also you tend to maybe overvalue your own personal experiences like in this sort of mystical moment of, you know, origin stories and whatnot. So to kind of switch back to the Drupal world a little bit, one of the things I thought was really interesting is that you ran, as far as I can tell, like an agency in that space for quite a long time, eventually transformed into a product. Yeah. How did you discover that product need, right? Like, did this come out of the community? Did it come out of your clients? Like, where did that come from? Totally. It was open source. It was scratchy on it, right? So like, I think of that phrase a lot. A lot of open source work is done by people who need to accomplish a particular goal and they solve their own problem. And so we had built a module and contributed it back that helped with database migration because it was like a frustration we constantly had as devs. It was like, all right, I've got to do some work, but I need to replicate live locally and this just like go through a bunch of work and maybe get an incomplete, you know, like, oh, I don't need all these cache tables. I don't need to like, there's some PII here. We need to like, I don't want that. I don't want all of the zip codes. Those didn't change. Right. And so just dealing with moving around large data sets became a problem. And so we built a module and is called backup and migrate. And that was actually the same lead engineer who went to DrupalCon Boston with me. Rona was the main developer on that. 
It was just like start off as an internal tool. My rec, we were like, contribute this back. It's hard to know if the conversations are apocryphal or if you remembered them enough times. It's like maybe adjusted, but having a conversation of like, oh, we should contribute this back. It's like, I don't know. Is anybody going to really want this thing? Anyways, did it. And then it kind of took off. It's probably a sweet spot in the timing as well as it was just like useful functionality and it did what it said on the box, right? It's just like, okay, this just works. And so it became one of like the top 10-ish modules on Drupal. Still, I think pretty quite high. And since gone on to new maintainers since then, but we realized inadvertently we were kind of creating a problem is that it was like making it really easy for people to store backups on their server. And that's not really a good place to think of a backup. That's not really a backup, right? And so we built a service that could plug into backup and migrate and realized, you know, we can charge for that. Like that's actually a product that we could build. And so those two things were separated by quite a fair amount of time. We had backup and migrate for probably three or four or five years of people adopting it and patching it, improving it and such before we realized, wait, not only could we do this because talk about lots of things over lunch, but like, okay, wow, proof of concept, not that hard. I think we could. And then it started taking off. So we had both businesses working for a while together. And that was like starting to be the tension point. Like both of them are going well. It was like, okay, this is great. But then as the CEO of a small company, you got to just like, oh, I guess I've got to put on my grown-up pants and figure out like, what am I supposed to do? Like product business, different than service business. What do you do? And that led to a lot of conversations. You're like, you know, should I invest more people, more support staff, you know, like more dedicated programming, all of that stuff. But it led to an acquisition by Pantheon, which we realized like, hey, there's an actual opportunity here. I reached out to them in part because they had also done that same thing. They're running an agency, built a platform. And I reached out to Zach, who is the CEO then and still today. And I was like, Zach, how'd you do that? Like, what? Give me advice. And then talking and talking. And before long, we realized, wait, the actual products we're talking about has a fair amount of, dare I say, synergy, right? And yeah, that led to an eventual acquisition. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was looking at the name of your product that Node Squirrel. And at first I was like, Node.js? Like, how does that factor in? It took me a while to process. You were talking about Drupal nodes. Yeah. But yeah, clever name. I'm curious, like, okay, you had this agency, you built this product to solve your own need. It became its own thing. It got acquired. And then suddenly you're a DevRel person. Yeah. Right. You know, a lot of people I talk to, they start as engineers, like they're a software engineer at a company. They're like, oh, I want to do more community facing stuff. They transition to DevRel. It's kind of a not quite a linear path, but a pretty straightforward one. Like, where did DevRel end up on your radar? Like, how did you decide on that title even? Yeah. Well, so because of it is a curious way to enter a company, like like by being acquired, you sort of like magically poof, there's no interview process. It's like, you're here now. So my first job at Pantheon was to figure out my first job at Pantheon. And I ended up working really closely with the CEO and the founders and such like, all right, well, here's, you know, what, what should I do? We carved out this job description really quickly, actually, just made a lot of sense. And at the time, we didn't even call it DevRel. We called it agency and community engineering because we were like out in the world, you know, helping agencies get better at the Drupal craft or the WordPress craft and like find infrastructure solutions for their needs. And then also super active in the community. And it was only after like a couple of years of doing that that we realized as a team, we'd grown, we like had all these great success stories, you know, people invest, all right, let's get more people, let's do more of this, et cetera like many DevRel programs grow, we realized, wait, there's like a whole bunch of humans out there in the world doing this. They call it developer relations. And <laughs> so we all started you know, like reading the blog posts and they were like, like, that's what we do. So we renamed ourselves. There was a rebranding somewhere in the middle of that. But it was, I think of DevRel as fundamentally two things. 
And I was fortunate enough early on to be able to talk with Adam Fitzgerald a few times. And at the time he was leading Amazon. Yeah, not in your head here. I don't know if people are on the audio, but somewhat well-known in the space, been doing it for a long time. And I think we were sitting down to lunch. He was like, well, fundamentally it's just two things. And he was like, it's awareness and success. And those may not have been his exact words again, but it was like, you do everything you need to do to help developers discover your platform. That's a whole chunk of work. You know, blog posts, go to events, do podcasts, whatever it is, you help awareness. And a lot of, you know, call that marketing. Scary word for many of us who are developers, but that's a whole discipline that looks a lot like developer marketing. And then there's the success though, is do everything you need to do to help developers be successful as soon as they decide to try. So make sure your readmes are concise and well-documented. Make sure that the APIs make sense. Make sure that your hello world is quick and easy. Have a warm, welcoming community where you can safely ask and answer questions. A whole ton of stuff that's very much not marketing. It's very much like relational and making out know, empathy, you know, like really building things that's going to be easy for someone to find that early success aha moment. Like whether or not they're going to use it long term, but they need to understand quickly whether or not there is value. If you like, make that take three hours. They're never going to know. They're going to move on to somebody who is able to help them. That's really interesting. You know, it's there's a lot of, I'll call it hemming and hawing about where a developer fits into an organization. But almost everyone I've talked to comes back to that same core definition you have, whether they're in marketing or engineering or product or some other department of their own. Like everyone kind of sees it similarly, but every org places it differently and measures it differently. Yeah. So totally agree. For my time at Pantheon, I reported into marketing the whole time. And, but it was like, there's no doing DevRel without a good relationship with product, without a good relationship with engineering. And, you know, for us, we were the early sales engineers too, effectively, before that became a department. And so we were kind of, even after the sales engineering really spun up to do like the big fancy accounts, we were kind of the sales engineers for the masses, if you will, just for, you know, normal people who wanted to see if they could get value out of it. So, I think wherever you report will sort of shape that and maybe focus more on one side than the other. But I think it's really critical for the success of any program that if you're reporting into marketing or if you're reporting into product to have like a really good relationship with that leader and say like, just so you know, I'm happy to be working for you. However, it's not everything I'm going to be doing. There's this other really important body of work and here's why. And like, uh, for me, at least having that alignment with a leadership about like, what's the purpose of this function and being able to state it clearly, honestly, DevRel is kind of a weird new thing. And it's a little bit spooky. Like, I don't, oh, like at some point, someone in the organization says, I think we need some DevRel around here. I feel like in many rooms that that happens in a bunch of people look, what do those people do again? Like those are the conference people, right? You're like, what are they, you know, like everybody has their own conceptions for that. And so I think being able to clearly articulate what it is you do as a group and then how that impacts the organization's overall success is really, really, really critical. And I think it is inherently cross-functional. And furthermore, I think you know, company structures evolve over time. You know, a hundred years ago, DevRel didn't exist, for example. But like, you know, Developers marketing. Didn't exist. Yeah, like marketing as a function is, you know, I think as like a discipline is something that I believe kind of emerged in the mid of the last in the 1900s, right? It's like, ah, we're seeing more and more of this like mass communications, you know put some words around that and some people and skills and such. I think a lot of organizations are modeled after organizations that would sell pencils or other things like that. And if you're doing DevRel, you're not selling pencils. And so organizationally, I think DevRel is part of a shift 
that is kind of challenging to traditional sales, marketing, product separation of org charts. I think growth as a discipline is probably more aligned with DevRel. It's like an evolution of business structures that I think that, that I sort of perceive. And like, that's like a lot of sort of hand wavy flim flam. But like at the end of the day, you work with humans and you don't want to have two esoteric titles in your organization. Otherwise, nobody's going to know what anybody does. But I don't know. I like, I sort of perceive a shift happening over time, or I think one makes sense to the extent if DevRel makes sense, maybe some other changes make sense too. It's maybe the concise way of saying that. Do you think that DevRel is destined for the C-suite eventually? For certain organizations, for sure. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. And business structures are like any other structures. They have to evolve or go away. And I think in a world that is much more focused on the building of software and sort of constructed multi-technology things, developers are an integral part of that. And I think that's one of the reasons that you know so many people in DevRel there's a good reason that DevRel is in demand. It's just, if you want the software world to connect with each other, you have to you have to have devs in there. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Which I think is kind of an interesting segue to what you're working on now at Near. Because when I think about Near or the broader Web3 space, it is entirely dependent on developers adopting it, right? And I say that there's more COBOL developers in the world than Web3 developers, right? And so it's a really interesting phase of evolution where it's like, you're building the bridge as people are crossing, you know? Yeah. Like these technologies are brand new, and so there aren't developers using them, but you have to build the technology and get developers on board, right? Like, has that changed your outlook at all? Like, No, it hasn't changed my outlook, but it's sort of like led me to think much more deeply about the craft of DevRel and like, what does it mean to have a good start state? Like the importance of having that quick, like we have a tool that we built inside of our DevRel team, which is called Create Near App. So Near is the, the protocol, right? So NPM, install it, boom, Create Near App, little dialogue, all of a sudden you've got the folder structure. Yep, I'm going to go with React, whatever. Just a couple little interactive prompts and boom, buried entry is one of the barriers to entry is over. So I don't think it's really changed my perspective so much, like really highlighted the need to do it well. I'm not sure if I'm really doing a great job answering that question though. Well, I mean, okay. So when we think about Web3 as a space, obviously everyone's heard about all the like weird and esoteric consumer use cases. But from my perspective, like the more interesting work is on the platform side. How do you actually build tooling that allows people to build interesting things in the space? Yeah. and yeah. From a DevRel perspective, it's like you're kind of, there is no product without DevRel. Like you can't just like throw a platform into the world and assume yeah. people will use it. You know, it's different from something like Drupal where like there is a consumer use case. You do not have to be a developer to use it. What you're doing now, you kind of do have to be a developer to adopt Near, right? And there are probably consumers on the other end of that. But, mm -hmm. but the platform is entirely dependent on developers using it. What have you seen in terms of the actual adoption of new, you know, Web3 technologies by, let's say, Web2 developers, right? So, yeah, I think like specifics, my instinct is go to like specific instances. So like one of the big organizations with applications in the near ecosystem is, is called Specoin, which is like as a movement app, right? So you basically go exercise. They've got, they've been around for a long time. And then they recently added near as like, hey, let's actually put real, if you will, dollars or, you know, like something of real value that people can transfer outside of this platform and give people more ownership. And so that they've 
integrated with Near, and I think we announced that they launched on Near. Actually, it was at a big event back in August. So millions of people doing it. I've got it on my phone. I'm always happy when I earn, you know, like take the dogs out for a walk and like, hey, right, you know, I earned like some 0.007, you know, <laughs> it's truly amounts, but it's still, it's like, I don't know. I also wear an Apple watch and that gamification works on me too for, uh, for, for exercising a little bit more. Anyways, I think with Web3, near any of those things, there's like, A, there's a lot of FUD, right? This definitely is an industry that has a fair amount of sort of religious feelings about it. And so that was one of the things that I personally had to like, sort of like come to terms with was like, all right, and fortunately for me, I'd lived through the early version of building the web. And as I was getting involved, it was like one of the early things was like, hey, the web, it's just for like porn and uh, scam artists, right? This is like, yeah, all right, those things can be, but it's like, that's not what the platform's about, right? Like, it's not just fundamentally this. Similarly, like much of the thought I heard was just sounded really eerily familiar to that. And so anyways, there's a whole like help people conceptually understand that there's something here that is not just tax scams and crypto bros, you know, swapping JPEGs. There's something interesting about the concept of digital ownership in a way that is independently verifiable and not dependent on any central body to sort of regulate, right? So central bodies. And I think, so that's part of the journey for anybody coming into, into the Web3 space and like helping somebody like SpotCoin understand that. And then having a really awesome engineering team and product team that really want to see this happen and be passionate about that. And so, you know, when we get the feedback or we're developing our sample apps and, you know, like those teams are wondering if they should do A or B, having an active partner there to listen and say like, oh, wow. Yeah. We thought this made sense from an engineering perspective, but now that we see the developer experience, like, ooh, okay, we need to make some changes here. So again, like there's this, like in the web three space, there's this education part, which is some of that may be done before they arrive at our doorstep or willing to knock, but Oftentimes there'll be some of those conversations will happen. And then it's just make that developer experience great, make it easy. And like the term web three, I think I don't really like it. I think it's divisive and it's not useful. It sort of implies that the thing that we've all been doing for those of us been building the web, that it's two and it's over, right? We're used to how version numbers work. There's a value judgment there that I think is not helpful. I think it's an intentional one. Yeah. So I find myself using it for just, clarity of communication, but it's not, the industry needs to get past that or fail, frankly. I mean, like, because this is just about independently verifiable, high trust database storage that it cannot be co-opted by someone else. And so like in the context, so you and I both live in North America, we're pretty used to having high confidence in our financial institutions and our government. Not that there's no corruption, but there's, you know, the people get in trouble if they do it, right? Or at least some of the time. It's That's unlikely just, someone's going to clear out your bank account for no reason. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like they get thrown in jail for that eventually, hopefully. Right. And we all have, you know, a fair amount of trust that, you know, Wells Fargo or Citibank or whoever is not like actually fiddling with the numbers or siphoning off stuff. The world's a big place and that is not true everywhere. Right. I have coworkers and colleagues who live in places where there's 50% inflation. That's suddenly a compelling problem, right? Like the money I earn today is worth half at the end of the year. So having basically a distributed system as alternative to that can help you pay rent, right? Like that's real. That's not just like speculation on whether or not this JPEG is going to be worth more tomorrow or next week or whatever. I find it really unique that I'll keep using the term web three because I don't have a better one, but like 
In the Web3 space, there is this implied understanding by the end user of the implications of the technology. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. if you ask someone like what database does your mobile app that you love use, they have no idea and they don't really <laughs> care, right? Yeah. As long as it works. But it does seem like at this stage in Web3, the consumer really does care about the technological implications of the platforms they are using, even for consumer use cases, which it's really interesting when you think about it from a DevRel perspective, because you're not necessarily just communicating to developers anymore. By extension, you're also communicating to their users. Totally. Yeah. And that's something that you really need the help of the app developers to communicate because they're the ones in the direct communication with their, you know, like we can help magnify their voices and such and, and like put a general thing out. But so for example, the world is full of streaming services, right? And so we got Netflix, we got Apple, we got all these. And Many of us pay many subscriptions to many of those organizations and you know, may or may not watch some of them. We don't own any of that content. There could be a different business model, which would be actually people make interesting things. You hear about them somehow. You exchange it. You know, there's the internet. We don't need distributors. And, and like you learn about things. Now, if I could have a relationship with this television program or movie or series or whatever it is and make payments directly to them actually verifiably own it, watch the series, resell it, whatever. I mean, like there's a different kind of relationship with the business, the way the money is moved, maybe better equitability for everybody involved. You can scrutinize that. I could actually, if I was so inclined, open up that code in that smart contract and realize that, oh, this streaming service is getting 99% of the revenue and only 1% is going back to the actors or whatever. Like you could imagine that somebody who came out with that sort of messaging might have a a differentiated ability to get people to sign up. And so there will be some version of this technology, of blockchain technology, that does make a lasting impact in our world. Whether that's near, I mean, I'm optimistic about near, obviously, but there are a bunch of technologies vying to do this. There's probably going to be several of them that have specific kind of use cases, more tuned to particular use cases, basically. But there's something compelling there, right? And Over time, I believe that we'll just see more and more organizations get that and have a competitive advantage of it long-term because of it. Or do something like what Sweatcoin has done, which is like, how about we do that to ourselves? How about we make our loyalty program have actual value so they don't just have to buy an app? Now they can, they could go exchange this someplace else and, and take it someplace else. And like, oh, their adoption has gone up. That's interesting. Yeah, it's conceptually very interesting, but still really early days, right? Yeah. It still feels like we're in the days of like, and, and this is even before my time, but like people who had the cell phones with the briefcase attached, right? Like we haven't evolved past that to the iPhone yet. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it is still early, which is like a cool, interesting, you know, every problem is an opportunity, right? And so, okay, there's opportunities to still get in early into the space and build something that could see just because of right time, right place mass adoption, like, you know, something like what I experienced with that set me on this journey of like contributing back something small to an open source community end up taking off because a lot of people have this problem. I think those opportunities exist today in the blockchain space for sure. And, but I totally agree. It's super early. It is the briefcase phone and (laughs) it looks a little dorky walking around with it. Yeah. I would like to end with a couple of, you know, sort of summarizing philosophical questions here. When you think back on your own journey and now what you're seeing as an executive, right, at a tech company, is there anything that you would like to see change about how developers are educated and enter the industry? Yeah, two things jump to mind. One is around diversity, and actually I think they're pretty related, and stereotypes. 
right? So there are a lot of stereotypes and people talk about like, you know, developers don't like marketing or like, like a lot of stories we tell ourselves, developers are this, developers aren't that, developers what, develop, you know, I don't think those are like, I've gotten suspicious of those stories we tell ourselves. I think developers are humans. And I think there's reasons we tell ourselves, you know, like we sort of like focus on developers as a, a particular subset of humans. But, and I think there are like, I'm a cis white male. I live in North America. I speak English as my native language. That's not the rest of the world, right? And we have too many of us building software that have a, approximately my pedigree, you know, like some version of this that, that just narrows the impact we can have in the world and ultimately is not a service to the humans that we are trying to help with the software we build. We just have blind spots, right? And so some things that are really important to me are in like kind of passion projects are like trying to improve access to tech for young kids, especially who don't look like me. And I think, you know, whatever they'd go on and do in life, that's up to them. But like if more sort of like early junior high, high school, even elementary school access to fundamentals of programming, I think serves us all better as humanity. That might be like a, a bit larger scope than what you're asking about, but I don't know. Those definitely, I care about it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's incredibly important. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time, Drew. The, the last question I always like to ask people before we hop off here is, is there anyone out there that you would aspirationally want to take to lunch? Like someone from the tech world, DevRel, society in general, that you'd love to just pick their brain for a few hours? It probably, and like my brain is going, I can't believe I'm sort of failing on this question. I've had many opportunities to have kinds of conversations like that, and I always love them. My mind's going to like some authors. I love reading. And so one of the things I think, you know, science fiction and fantasy does for me is allows me to sort of mentally construct together with the author an alternate world in which different rules apply and like see how humanity plays out. And so, for example, I love The Expanse as a series that's actually two different authors writing as one. There are so many good books. I think I'd probably go for an author because I actually feel like I probably have. LinkedIn tells me I'm one away from lots of famous people already. All right. And I've had some opportunities like that before. I don't know. You've probably heard way better answers from lots of people. Give me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a personal question, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I love that answer. I think that science fiction is certainly my favorite genre as well. And the way that a lot of sci fi authors think about the world and yeah. philosophy and ethic and all of these different things coming together is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. You know, folks who are listening, we'll post some links to different profiles in our show notes and definitely like and subscribe if you want to hear more. Happy hacking, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks much. This is awesome. Pleasure to be here. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking, and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!